Well, good morning, everyone, as we're gathering here. It is good to be back in Faith Builders. It feels like I've been gone forever, and I know it's not quite been forever, but it's been close to forever. I am very thankful to be here. We are going to start a study of Second Peter, and I am very excited. I always, it seems like whatever book I'm studying becomes my favorite book of the Bible, and I'm sure many of you have experienced that. As you start digging into a book, it blesses your heart, it helps you. But Second Peter was a, a purposeful choice for me as I pondered where to go next after we finished Joel. Certainly, I could have gone to Second Peter because I taught through First Peter, but the focus of Second Peter is different than the focus of First Peter. All of the Bible, of course, is pointing us towards holiness, including Second Peter. But the focus is very different. And as I reflected on where we are in America, where we are as a church, the American church, I should say, it seemed to me that we need to hear and be reminded of the truths of Second Peter. Now, it's interesting because as I reflect on my Christian life, as I've said many, many times, I was genuinely converted, I believe, in 1993, which means I'm almost at 30 years of being a believer. But Debbie and I have been members of four different churches, Lakeside being the fourth. So over that time, we lived in San Diego area, and then we lived in Fresno, and then we lived in the LA area, and now we're back here. And I've observed something over the course of those years that absolutely impacted my thinking in terms of what book to teach next. Now, every one of the churches that we were a part of preached the gospel. Every church we were a part of had strong believers. Every church had individuals who strongly influenced us in our walk with the Lord as a married couple and as an individual. So the Lord really blessed us over those years. My point of saying that is that our church exposure as a married couple has been in Orthodox churches, churches that were grounded on the Scriptures, that had pastors who affirmed the authority of Scripture, who taught Scripture as the truth of God as it really is. And as I have experienced life, first as just a regular church member like anyone else, and then as a pastor, particularly amongst Americans in Bible-believing churches, something has always stood out to me. And it's the type of thing that I think is more and more relevant in the era in which we live but the thing that has stuck out to me is this. What Christians, and I don't mean the generic label of Christians that people believe anything. I'm talking about people that theoretically are serious about the Bible, that go to churches like where we've been members. That what people say they believe and how they live don't match up. Now, I'm not just talking about the hypocrisy of sin. We all struggle against that daily. What I'm talking about is saying that I believe something and then basing your life on those beliefs as opposed to the influences of the world. I could state it another way and I wouldn't be incredibly articulate because I'd have to define every term. 
but of people who profess that they believe the Bible when it comes to the decisions they make and how they go about choosing what to do in life and the steps they're going to take, they don't base that off of the truths they say they believe. In my notes, and you have to trust me that they exist, I, I referenced three scriptures that sort of prove my point. And I'm limited because for each one, I could go back and I could point to you people and individuals and names and faces that come to my mind. But there's three scriptures that I came up with in the top of my head that illustrate what I'm talking about. And there are countless others. These are just what I came up with. The first scripture is very familiar to all of you, I assume, if you've been in the church for very long, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. says this, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Thank goodness I have that one memorized. Equipped for every good work. There's a promise there certainly to pastors, but it goes beyond pastors. It's very clear that all Scripture is breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God. It's not just the thinking of men. It's not like the op-ed of a newspaper where somebody just muses about what they think. This is the very Word of God. And it will impact every aspect of our life. Such that anything that God calls us to do, we're equipped for it. If we're called to be a wife as a woman, we're equipped for it. If we're called to be parents, we're equipped for it. If we're called to be a husband, we can be equipped for it. In the workplace, everything. Equipped for every good work. We lack nothing. The second scripture, I believe, is 1 Corinthians 10.13. I could actually see it, I could tell you. But again, it happens to be one of those scriptures that I know. No temptation has seized you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape. That's probably butchered a little bit. That's probably not the precise language. But there's a promise there that says, For a believer... There is no circumstance where you must sin, period. There's never a time where you're not able to get away from it. There's never a time when you can say, it wasn't my fault. There's never a time when you can look truthfully at your circumstances and say, well, it wasn't my fault. No temptation. None, no matter the circumstance, no matter what it is, you can overcome it. That doesn't bode well for our current society, which always has a therapeutic reason why it wasn't my responsibility. That kind of thinking permeates churches with the idea of, well, I, I can't overcome that one. I, I can overcome a lot of things, but that one's too powerful. That one's beyond me. That one overwhelms me. I can't possibly defeat it such that you shouldn't be angry with me or frustrated with me 
or confronting me, even though the Bible says God always provides the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. The final scripture that I think proves my ultimate point that Christians say one thing but live another is found in the book we're about to start studying. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the third verse, says this, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. If you are genuinely a believer, you lack nothing for the ability to live on a daily basis in obedience to the Lord. Now, why do I highlight these particular verses? For a couple of reasons. But primarily because from the time I was first saved and began trying to figure out how to walk in obedience to the Lord, I've seen believer after believer profess to believe the Bible and yet base their life decisions on what the world says or what their family says or what their best friends say or what their bosses say rather than going to the Word of God. And over and over again, I've seen Christians ensnared in sin who absolutely abdicated any responsibility that was their fault and said, look, I can't help it. The word addiction gets thrown around. Really, that's it's not, nothing wrong with the word if what you mean by that is you're enslaved to sin. So believers over and over again have come to the point, at least in my experience, believers in good churches where they don't really believe the Bible is enough for their lives. Why are there very few pastors around the country that preach like Steve Kreloff? Because people don't want to hear that. They want what's relevant for their lives. They want daily nuggets that help them live their life. They need help because life is hard. As though the Word of God speaks nothing of that. In fact, to me, the greatest danger to evangelical churches is the fact that believers don't really believe the Bible's all they need. I need this expert, or that expert, or that extra person, or these people. When in fact, the Word of God has said all that we need. Such that believers who should know better, and I've seen it in every church I've been a member of, including Lakeside, don't always go to the Bible as a first source, but they look to outside sources. Something that's actually relevant for the problem they're dealing with. As though, again, the Bible doesn't deal with the problems of life. According to Second Peter, we already have everything that pertains to life and godliness. What else is there besides life and godliness? Now, all that isn't even the crux of the issue of why I chose Second Peter, but it shows the problem, and here's what happens. If you're susceptible to not believing that the Bible is enough, 
that the Bible addresses a lot of good things, but not really my issues. If you believe that, then false teachers will wrap you around their finger just like that. Because they'll say the words that you want to hear. Books become very popular overnight because somebody said something that really spoke to me. Made me feel a certain way, even though it contradicted Scripture. And false teachers and false doctrine and according to what we would call from Scripture doctrines of demons are permeating not just the American landscape but the American church. And they make inroads every month, every week, every day, every year into Bible-believing churches more and more and more. And I could say that it comes from a lot of bad articles posted on social media that people read and lap up and they don't check it against the scriptures. But that's really not the issue. The ultimate issue is they don't believe the Bible's enough in the first place. So they're looking for something else. I believe Second Peter reminds us not only that we already have all we need, which we do, but it also warns us about the dangers of false teachers and what they will do to us if we're not careful. Such that we, I hope, will be more discerning with what we listen to. We'll be more discerning those people who profess to speak for us, who we listen and absorb their ideas. I can't tell you the number of bad teachers that I've heard affirmed by otherwise theoretically solid people in every church I've been a part of. Everyone. Affirming things that are horrific and they're false and they're not true and yet they don't see any conflict because they're not really convinced the Bible speaks to their issues. So I hope that in studying this we'll become more discerning, we'll be encouraged, we'll be reminded of what God has done for us, and it will strengthen our confidence in the Word of God and in the provision of God for our daily lives, no matter what the world throws at us. I read a survey, and I managed to find the survey, thankfully, when I realized I didn't have my notes. But this is an illustration of the things I'm talking about. Now this survey was published at least in August of 2021, so this isn't dated material. And it's produced by a Christian organization, so this isn't a secular survey by the New York Times or something. But it's the type of thing that shows how far away thinking is from what the Bible says. Now this survey surveyed Christians in general, but then it did have a subset called born-again Christians, which is where we would fit. Those who profess to having been born again, coming to faith in Christ. And the survey listed some positive and negative things. And again, these are just illustrations, and I've seen this type of thing in my own life, probably you have too. 
Here's the things that were presented as positive by this survey of born-again Christians in America. 78% believe that the marriage of one man to one woman is God's plan for humanity across all cultures. 72% believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, and just creator of the universe who rules the universe today. And 60% believe that the Bible is the accurate and reliable words of God. Now those were presented as the positive things which is really horrific because that means 22% of people who profess to be born again don't accept marriage as what God says it is. 28% don't believe that God's all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe and those are supposed to be born again people. 40% of those Bible-believing people don't believe the Bible is accurate. Or reliable. Now the negative numbers. Those were supposed to be the positive. The negative numbers are just as horrific. 77%. Again these are not generic Christians. These are Bible believing Christians. 77% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. Hmm. This really gets to the heart of what I was talking about the scripture. 69% accepted feelings, experience, and the input of friends and family as their most trusted sources of most moral guidance. 65% say there is no absolute moral truth. 62% contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. 61% say that all religious faiths are of equal value. And 60% believe that a person is good enough or does enough good things they can earn their way into heaven. That's the landscape of theoretical born-again Christianity in America. And while I dare say our numbers are much better than that at Lakeside... I think we might be surprised if we did a survey like that of what it might reveal. But if 69% of those people, almost 7 out of every 10, accept that feelings and experience and the input of friends and family is more important than the scripture when it comes to life, you can understand how all the other things fall into place. I don't want that to be the case for any of you. I thank the Lord for Lakeside and for the example that this church is. But there's probably a reason why we don't have 10,000 people packing into our parking lot. Because people want something more. Well, Pastor Steve just teaches the Bible. We need something more. So, I hope as we go through this that you're encouraged, I hope that you're challenged, and I hope that it strengthens your determination to make your stand on the Word of God. The false teachers aren't receding, they're proliferating. If you were to do internet searches, and I would encourage you not to, it's like playing whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole. Where every time you hit one false teacher, another head pops up. 
It's a kid game you play at Chuck E. Cheese. But the bottom line is, more and more, unless you live in a vacuum, you're going to be bombarded with error and falsehood. Praise the Lord for faithful men like Pastor Steve. But they're too few and far between for the health of the body of Christ. So as we go into this, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. And this morning, I want to just highlight a few aspects of introduction. I always try and introduce a book to give you a little background. And normally, that would involve talking about the author of the book, if it can be ascertained from Scripture. Also, generally, of when the book was written, why it was written, what it was addressing... In there, I like to talk about the audience. Why was this written to someone who needed to hear this? And so if you have your Bibles, if you open it up, we're not starting our study yet. But I first want to talk about the author of the book. In 2 Peter chapter 1, the beginning of verse 1 says this, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to read that, you might think that the person who wrote the letter was Simon Peter and a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, which of course it was. But without boring you with it, but if you start looking into things like this, you find that many scholars of the Bible aren't believers. And most scholars would tell you Peter didn't write this book. Now, that's not true. I believe completely that Peter wrote the book. I believe there's sufficient evidence, solid evidence that Peter wrote the book. It's in the Scripture. But people have doubted that Peter could have written the book for a variety of reasons that aren't really that important. But I view things like that as continual attacks against the authority and reliability of Scripture. In fact, some would have us believe that this is a useful book even though it begins with a lie in the very first sentence. Well, this wasn't Peter and he knew he wasn't Peter. He was lying about being Peter but he said some really good things. I can assure you if the first words out of someone's mouth are a lie, I wouldn't trust the next words out of their mouth. And I dealt with a lot of lawyers I know from what I speak. But this was written by Peter and it was written we believe at a unique time in his life but I was thinking this morning that if I knew I was going to die today what would be the last things I would say to someone if God told me you're going to die what would be the last things that I would tell people well we believe that when Second Peter was written it's really Peter's farewell address Look for just a moment down to verse 13. Because Peter shares something of why he's writing. He says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. In other words, Peter knew 
that he was about to die. Now church history slash tradition tells us that Peter was martyred. He was killed for his faith. And we believe from historical references that he died during the persecution of the emperor Nero of Rome. Nero, the experts tell us, died in 68 AD. So in all likelihood, Peter died sometime prior to this. But it is very possible that this letter was written from prison while he was awaiting his execution. So he knew because the Lord had made clear to him his departure from this earth was imminent. And this is what he chose to share. These were his, this was his last shot, so to speak. And this is what he knew to share. What's fascinating about that to me is Peter's historical background. Now I shared some of this when I talked through 1 Peter. But Peter really had a unique place amongst the apostles. If you look at the listings, four different accounts where all 12 are listed, the first name every time is the same as Peter. He had a unique place amongst Peter's disciples. It was Peter, James, and John who went to the Mount of Transfiguration. Amongst these 12 disciples, there was an inner circle, so it seems, from Scripture. And Peter was a leader amongst leaders. He had seen unbelievable things. Every one of the apostles has seen unbelievable things. Peter was called from a life not of privilege or education. He was a fisherman. He might have had some success as a fisherman, but he was just a fisherman. He wasn't educated or learned. In the book of Acts, when he was beginning to preach, people were amazed because these aren't educated men, aren't they, from Galilee? And yet he had done remarkable things with the Lord. He had cast out demons. He had been privileged to see miracle after miracle after miracle. He had been there when Jesus fed the 5,000 and fed the 4,000. Peter actually, before he sank, walked on water. It was Peter when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the Christ. Peter had a unique and privileged status. Now we know that Peter was bold and he fell on his face and he was humiliated because when he said, Lord, all these other, barring the vernacular today, if all these other loser disciples fall away, I won't fall away. I got your back, Jesus. Jesus knew better. Even when the soldiers first came, Peter lashed out. He was going to go down swinging. But then eventually he cursed, probably using some of his old fisherman language, and said, I don't know who that is. So Peter experienced incredible highs, and he also experienced incredible lows. But he was personally restored by Jesus. Jesus restored him to ministry. And he was a powerful voice. He was one of the initial powerful preachers on the day of Pentecost. He was the one, even though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, it was Peter who was called in Acts chapter 10 to go to the household of Cornelius. 
for the very first time an open salvation to people like us. In fact, he was even rebuked for going and eating with Gentiles and then after he explained everything that was going on, they stopped complaining and they gave glory to God and said even the Gentiles have been granted repentance. So he had a unique place. He had a powerful ministry. The Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, he was one of the prominent voices to speak. Fair to say that of the apostles that walked with Jesus, Paul having unique and separate experience, Peter was perhaps the most prominent and the best known. And as he was dying, he took the time to share words. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. There's humility and authority wrapped up at the same time. He's making it clear, I'm a slave just like you're a slave. But he was writing with apostolic authority. And these were likely, well they were his last written words. This was his farewell message. It's interesting because some people object because he calls himself Simon Peter, but reality, even the Simon Peter is a measure of humility because quite often, including when he was rebuked by the Lord, not exclusively, but at times, Jesus referred to him as Simon, Simon. So Peter wrote this. He knew he was dying. And one of the greatest men, one of the greatest apostles, one of the greatest preachers, thought these words should be his last. So we would do well to pay attention to them. Now in terms of the audience, so we know Peter was writing, in all likelihood writing before his martyrdom. Who was he writing to? Well, there's one sense in which it's very generic and we don't know exactly. Keep reading in 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind desires by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, that obviously could apply to any believer anywhere. And certainly his words as Scripture do apply to any believer anywhere. But I think we get a feel for who he's actually writing to by something he says later. If you flip over to chapter 3, in verse 1 he says this, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Again, without getting into the scholarly debates, I believe the first letter was First Peter. So if that's the case, then this letter, even though it's introduced in more generic terms, was written to the same group of churches that 1 Peter was written to. And 1 Peter chapter 1 says, To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were chosen. Just a, a group of churches that were in the area that we would call Turkey today, that Peter knew and that had a relationship with him. And so as best as we can understand without a specific designation in Second Peter, 
it seems reasonable to assume that this was the second letter to the same group of people. So why was he writing? And I'm going to have to cover this very quickly because time's getting away from me and this is where I really, really wish I had all my notes. But it's interesting because he's not telling them something new, which is how I feel every time I teach at Lakeside. You guys know a lot. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1 of Second Peter. He says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Every time I teach at Lakeside, I feel that way. Many of you have been at Lakeside longer than I have. Steve has been preaching these truths. You've been at other churches that have been preaching these truths. So I realize a lot of what I say is just reminding you of what you already know. And that hopefully will be the case with 2 Peter. But Peter wasn't trying to chart new territory per se. He was just reminding them of foundational truths. Why? Because some were casting doubt on the reliability of the Word of God. I say this for a couple of reasons. And obviously as we go through this verse by verse, we'll see all this in more detail. But look, for example, in chapter 1, verse 16. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. It seems as though someone must have at least been alluding to or intimating or it must have been circulating somewhere that this was just make-believe, that this didn't really happen. Peter's saying, look, we told you these things. We saw them. They're real. This isn't just some made-up story. Which is how most Americans view the Bible today as some cleverly devised tale. It really goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The very first entrance of sin into humankind was Satan tempting Eve. And Satan went right to the heart of the matter. He was more crafty than any other beast. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said. It's been said by people a lot smarter and better teachers than me. Satan knows the Bible backwards and forwards. He hates it. The height of his arrogance is he tried to use the word of God to trip up the word of God in tempting Jesus. But it still boggles my mind. You would use the word to tempt the word. But that was his goal before the scriptures were even written down. And it's never changed. He's a liar and the father of lies. And so Peter knew that some... We're dismissing all that was said about Jesus as cleverly devised tales. And he's more specific at the beginning of chapter 2, and this really gets to the heart of the book. But false prophets, chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And that gets to the crux. 
of why Peter was writing. He certainly wanted to remind them of the truth. He wanted to stir up in them the truth. Why? Because he knew false teachers were coming. He'll tell us how to identify the false teachers. Not just by their words, but by their lifestyles. He'll tell us what motivates the false teachers. He'll tell us what's going to happen to the false teachers. But as someone who was about to die, and he loved the church, he loved God's people, and he had one last shot, so to speak, to share with them, this was his warning. He wanted them to base their lives on the Word of God. Look ahead to chapter 3 again. I read verse 1. Let me read it all the way through verse 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. In other words, you need the Word of God. That's what you need to remember. That's what needs to be stirred up in your mind. And that's what we need. So I hope for all of us, Second Peter, as we studied, is just a reminder of the truths we've already been taught. But we need it. Because while your elders will do everything we can to make sure false teachers don't walk amongst us at Lakeside, you're exposed to them every day when you click on the internet or you're on social media or you're watching TV or even when family and friends who should know better send you the article and say I think this is very helpful even though it contradicts scripture so I'm looking forward to the study I love you guys I'm so thankful to be here and I look forward to our study together so let me pray and close our time dear Heavenly Father I thank you so much for the truths of your word Lord, each one of us has gone through different experiences of life, ups and downs, trials and tribulations, joys and sorrows. But Lord, I thank you that you fully meet all of our needs. You've given us your word, which equips us for every good work you've called us to. And Lord, you've promised that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, including the ability to resist the temptations that try and trip us up every day. Lord, I pray that as we study Second Peter, that you will work in our hearts, that you will stir up the reminders of what we have in your word. And Lord, I pray that you'll protect us, including me, from false teachers. Lord, they're persuasive, they're skilled, quite often they're engaging and personable, and they may even appear to be caring and kind. But Lord, help us discern error and run from it by grounding ourselves in your truth. Lord, we love you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.